Friends, welcome to another episode of It Takes a Village, a podcast of Healing Hands International. We're out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my name is Mark Gent, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Taryn Foster. Hey, Taryn. Hey, how's it going? Great. What's going on? Uh, nothing much. Just recording this podcast with you. Just recording a podcast <laughs> with me. Yes. yes, we are. Here we are recording another episode. If you're just now tuning into the podcast, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to our previous episodes. Our goal is to reach a new audience about the work of Healing Hands and a resource for people to learn about other nonprofits and ministries in the area that you can connect with. You know, when we launched the podcast, we had this idea of bringing in and spotlighting local nonprofits and all the different organizations and ministries who serve our city. And uh, for some, like ourselves, we work internationally um, by help uh, through humanitarian aid and disaster relief and hunger and among many different aspects of our ministry. So whereas we go uh, around the world, other people just go across the street. And that is who our guest is today. Uh, we have an, She is an incredibly strong, empathetic, and courageous woman. Uh, she started a nonprofit right here in Nashville 10 years ago uh, that's made just a huge impact in our community. Her name is Lindsay Krinks. Uh, Lindsay's the co-founder of Open Table. She is the author of a new book that came out earlier this year called Praying with Our Feet, Pursuing Justice and Healing on the Streets. And as you're going to hear, Lindsay has just lived out her life in boldness and faith and uh, she has a lot of rich experiences and stories to share, and we're really excited about you um, hearing from her today, hearing about her journey, hearing about Open Table, hearing about her book, and just how uh, God's been working in and through her life now um, since she started this journey and working with the local homeless community. Yeah, this episode is loaded, so strap on your seatbelts, and here's our conversation with Lindsay Krinks. Lindsay, welcome to It Takes a Village. Thank you for coming on and having this little chat with us. We're happy you're here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Lindsay is a co-founder of a net local nonprofit called Open Table. She is a street chaplain, social justice advocate, activist, relatively new mother, mm-hmm. and new first-time author of the book Praying With Our Feet. And she's someone I want to be like when I grow up. You're very cool. <laughs> Thanks. Come join us. We have a lot of fun out there. Okay. Maybe I will. Uh, Lindsay, so good to see you again. It's been a long time. Yes. Um, uh, I know that uh, when you were in college, I got to know you and Andrew about 15 years ago or more. And just, I, I do remember you being on campus and being around a lot, just this, a, a passionate, enthusiastic college student. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that hasn't changed. That's still who you are today and more so. And that's awesome to see where God's led you and to see where uh, he's planted you and um, just how he's using you today. So, yeah, we are grateful. When we were brainstorming who could be guests that would be on the podcast, you were, and we thought about the nonprofit sector, you were one of the first people that came to mind uh, just because of uh, your work and because of that passion that I talk about. Um, so we are so excited about our listeners getting to know you today and getting to know more about uh, what you do and what makes your heart beat and things of that nature. So um, so tell us about this with Open Table. I know that uh, Taryn's already introduced you and in, in the uh, all the different many hats that you have and the roles that you play, but... Um, there at Open Table, you're a co-founder, you're the director of education and advocacy. Uh, you guys started that about 10 years ago uh, when you incorporated it as a nonprofit. And just t- tell our listeners a little bit about how the organi- organization gets started and really what's the vision and the mission behind it. Totally. We, um, you know, we started Open Table Nashville after a natural disaster here locally. Um, in 2010, there was a huge flood. And a lot of our friends on the streets were living in encampments by the river, and they got completely washed out, completely flooded out. A lot of us were in community with them, and when this happened, the city condemned the property so they couldn't go back. And Open Table Nashville started because of a promise we made to those residents, and we said, the city has abandoned you. 
Um, other structures and groups have abandoned you, but we will not. Um, we are going to um, figure out what that looks like. We're going to find um, a place for you to be, and we're going to journey with you the whole way. Um, and Open Table Nashville is, you know, we do more with housing than we do with food. The name um, we didn't really think about, you know, the restaurant business that would come in as Open Table. Yeah. <laughs> we named it. But, you know, the, the name Open Table is a theological claim. It, mm. Our friends on the streets don't just need crumbs from the table. That is no more than charity. They need a place at the table. And at the table of God, all are welcome. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to have a table with our friends. So we do a lot of housing advocacy here. We're here to um, you know, journey with the marginalized, disrupt cycles of poverty, and to provide um, education about issues of homelessness. And we um, write, like tonight we're going to a public meeting about um, a camp that's facing closure because of new development. That's happening across the city. So we are advocates. We believe in solidarity, not just service. But certainly um, all of us started out with that service mindset and still carry that today too. And for people who are listening who are not familiar, maybe they're not from Nashville or maybe they are. Maybe they live right here in our city, but they've just been uh, sheltered from the crisis that's here. Um, describe to them what's going on in Nashville. Maybe even talk about some of the numbers that you have because um, you know, so many people are familiar with the shelters here in town uh, that do uh, that can do great work and and they serve their purpose well. But then, uh, what Open Table does is you fill in the gaps and you go beyond that. Um, so talk talk to us about um, Nashville, Middle Tennessee, um, any of the stats that you have that may um, you know somebody listening it might be alarming might be like hey I, wow I've lived here for a long time I didn't know that. Yeah, so, you know, homelessness in Nashville and across the United States is growing. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that, but it is. Um, and as a homeless outreach nonprofit, we go to where people are. So our office is the streets, it's the underpasses, it's the slums, it's the tent cities. And what we see happening on the ground is mass homelessness continuing to rise, um, both locally and nationally. So locally, what that looks like is... Um, the, the conservative estimates um, put, you know, around 4,000 homeless school children um, in, in schools. That's how many Metro Nashville public schools counts. That's 4,000 wow. children that are school-aged mm -hmm. in our public schools, um, which, again, is an underestimate. And then about 2,500 or so um, folks experiencing literal homelessness. What that doesn't take into account, of course, is all the people couch surfing, all the people that the surveys don't count, um, the counters don't get, that are hiding in storage units. Um, we find people everywhere in the city, um, in cars, in the Walmart parking lots. We had a mother and two children living in a storage unit um, with no running water with her two children because she had been evicted. And of course, our, our estimate is that there are around 20,000 people experiencing housing insecurity and homelessness in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And that's enough to pack out Bridgestone Arena mm -hmm. on the most crowded night. So this is a growing issue, and with the eviction moratorium ending, um, we are bracing ourselves for the wave of people that is to come. We've already seen new people on the streets since the pandemic started, so we're um, we're really worried, um, and we're working with local, uh, like city agencies on that. We're uh, talking to national advocacy groups. Um, this is this is a crisis that um, we haven't seen um, to this extent in our lifetime that is happening right now in our own backyard, um, you know, while we sleep, while we go about our days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you touched on this uh, about the pandemic, but talk about uh, the impact that the pandemic had on um, this community in this way and on Open Table. Uh, I'd say, we're, you know, we're not on the other side of it. It's still happening and it, it's going to be here for a while. But um, give us some perspective on how that's impacted you in this work. You know, people, so I've heard people say that, um, you know, the pandemic was a great equalizer, right? It affected everybody the same, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks could shelter in home. They were, you know, able to follow the safer at home measures. Um, our friends on the bottom who were, um, you know, they were um, cleaning up the bars at night. They were cleaning out the stadium after big events, doing a lot of the work downtown that, that most of us would never see, and none of us want to get paid for, <laughs> you know, making minimum wage. All those jobs vanished overnight. And not only did the jobs that people were working vanish, but um, the libraries and community centers closed, and that's where people go during the day to get out of the heat, 
to access restrooms, water fountains, things like that. So um, food providers shut down. It was, we saw mental health issues spike. We saw crisis situations spike and suicide spike and overdoses spike. It was um, a, a truly harrowing situation. Um, instead of um, having, you know, hotels to shelter people in, like some cities and states did, um, we had congregant shelters, which means that there were outbreaks of COVID. Outbreaks of COVID are still going on in the mission because it's a congregant setting. Um, and the encampments grew um, in that meantime, too. So we um, saw the biggest numbers in encampments across the city that we had ever seen. And we advocated to get restrooms and hand-washing stations there and things like that. But in addition to the pandemic, of course, um, and um, the economic downturn, we also have a housing crisis, an affordable housing crisis in Nashville, which anyone knows if they've even looked at the market here yeah. or heard about people trying to find housing here, whether to buy or rent. Um, so those things coupled together um, have made it a very, a very difficult year and a half. And we've lost people uh, like everyone. So many people have too. Mm -hmm. I actually just started renting a home. And so I, I've seen those numbers and I'm like, I can barely afford this and I have a nice job, you know, so yeah. it's tough. It's so tough to make it. And, you know, on minimum wage, we have the lowest minimum wage in the nation. Um, and you just can't make it. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't pull, there are no bootstraps to pull yourself up by. Um, and that is a systemic issue. You know, when people that are, are working two to three jobs, I know working two to three jobs still can't make the rent, um, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we've got to look at as a society and as people of faith and conscience, right? Right. And ask why is this happening in a city like Nashville in the Bible Belt? Switching gears to kind of where you started, um, how how did this passion start for for the homeless community? Uh, was it like in college, a specific person that pushed you towards that? What, what does that look like? It was a kind of cluster of events, right? Um, it you know I have a um, family history of homelessness, so I have uncles and cousins, and even briefly my brother who um, who struggle with um, you know institutions being out of um, being out of housing for a while and mental health issues. And so I knew that that was a thing and that, that kind of opened my eyes at an early age to some of the suffering that can go on in the world. But then when I moved to Nashville for college to go to Lipscomb, mm -hmm. which I loved, um, I, I started seeing those issues on a whole nother level. And, you know, when one or two people are experiencing these things, we can, you know, we can maybe believe the lie that it's their fault, that they chose this or that, you know, it's, you know, they did something, but, Right now in the United States, um, the fastest growing demographic of people becoming homeless is children, it's youth mm. and young families. Um, so something isn't right. And so something kind of, when I moved here and I started seeing suffering on a larger scale, and when I started understanding global poverty and hunger issues, which of course we share an interest in um, alleviating, right? Um, mm. That really kind of broke me out of that kind of sheltered, um, kind of life that my parents had tried to put over us to try to keep my brother and my sister and I away from suffering. Um, and then, you know, reading the prophets and reading the gospels, um, it's a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. it, it's so funny to me how safe and domesticated we make scripture. Mm -hmm. It was not written in a social, political, or economic vacuum, mm -hmm. you know, and, and today um, to act like our spiritual lives can be separate um, our public lives and society and our, the choices we make. Um, that's an illusion. The choices we make matter. Um, and as Christians, we've got to be more intentional about that. So um, so those things and then reading the prophets and having my own dark night of the soul kind of um, really opened my eyes. And then I fell in with probably the right and wrong people, like <laughs> Father Charles Strobel, who started Room in the Inn, and the Nashville Homeless Power Project, which I write about um, in the book, which we'll mm -hmm. talk about later. Um those, those folks changed my life and perspective. So I'm really thankful to that and um, to the prophets and, and to um, the spirit of God that was moving. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's kind of where that started, your your boldness. Have you always had that kind of like, what? Do you know any Enneagram? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am a three with a two wing. Okay. Um, so I have a tendency to really focus on tasks and mm. getting things done and, you know, moving to the next thing. Um, and I also have a tendency to focus on others' needs instead of oh, my own, yeah. which can lead to some burnout I've learned over the years. Yeah. But yeah, 
I'm a, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm working on all of that and I'm thankful for the Enneagram for um, some yeah. of that language so I can yeah. better understand those patterns. Yeah. It's like the perfect storm. It totally it's is. Like, <laughs> I know, but you can do. channel that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all of us can be healthy and can channel the good parts of our numbers. And that's what, um, I'm trying to continue to do. <laughs> So last year, um, 2020, wow, what a year for you. What a year. What a year for you. So you lost your house in a tornado. We did. And you, our cars. And your cars. Everything, yep. Uh, and you uh, you lived through a pandemic like we all did. We all did. But uh, you also wrote a book, which we're going to touch on later, and you became a mom for the first time. Y'all. So, <laughs> wow. So, um, I mean, what a year. And... Uh, you know, last year, uh, a week before COVID shut down, um, is when the tornado just ripped through our city and destroyed the homes for thousands of people. And you know, yours and Andrews was one of them. And um, in the book, you write about this. I mean, you were in the middle of writing the book when that happened, right? Right. And uh, I know in the book, you said, we are learning the grief of disaster and displacement in new and stunning ways, but we're also learning the gift of grace and solidarity as well. So talk to us about that terrifying experience and really just what you learned through loss. You know, we always say um, all of us are just one paycheck or one disaster away from experiencing homelessness. And if anybody doesn't believe that we're a couple, all of us are a couple tragedies away, like then let my life be an example, right? Like we going about our business, I was five months pregnant, working really hard. And then a tornado one night, there wasn't even, I didn't even think it was going to rain that night. And at 12 o'clock, 12 something, um, Andrew leans over and he's like, my phone just started going off. I think we need to get into the bathroom. And then our home just starts shaking with the loudest noise I've ever heard. Um, And then, of course, you know, we're safe. Our house is mostly standing, but structurally unsound. And we go out, and our neighborhood is just ravished. You know, there are telephone poles down everywhere, live wires on the ground, um, neighbors that need help out of their homes because they're trapped. Um, It was very intense. Um, And had we not had home insurance, you know, had we not had community support after that, um, we didn't have any transportation, you know, our cars were beyond repair. So it was a really, um, it, it was life altering and so traumatic. Um, and we're one of the lucky ones, right. In terms of we're rebuilding right now, we're almost about to move back. Um, we didn't want to sell our lot to developers to put up more tall and skinny. So we um, wanted to maintain that, you know, as an affordable, somewhat affordable home in that neighborhood um, and be back with our neighbors. Um, so I'm really thankful for that. But, um, you know, the first call I got that night um, was probably around 1 a.m. or so. Um, a lot of people were sleeping because it didn't hit their area. It was my friend from Tent City, and he was like, Miss Lindsay, we just heard the tornado came through, and we heard it hit North Nashville and Jefferson Street Bridge, and we're coming up to help. We're walking up from Tent City. Wow. Um, you know, are you all okay? And then the next morning, the first person that pulled up in my home was an old friend from Tent City um, who is one of our board members now who has housing, Raphael. And he was there with a lot of our friends and community to help us salvage whatever we could. It, it, it just takes an instant, you know, one diagnosis, one financial crisis, one job loss, one something um, to uproot us all. And if that can't help us have more compassion for the folks that are, that are dealing with this, that are being evicted or being served eviction notices today and tomorrow with their families um, because of this pandemic, um, then I don't know what will. But um, I'm thankful for the community. Community is what gets you through those things. I was going to so, ask you know, what what got you through that, but it's evident through the, through how your your response that it was your community, it was your family, yeah. it was those who you have loved and who you've loved well. Um, they were giving that back to you. Totally. I mean, you journey alongside folks for so long and then things change and they journey alongside you. And it's the most beautiful form of solidarity I can think of. Um, and that's what I think the gospel is calling us into those relationships of community and solidarity. Um, and of course there's an element of faith sustaining you, but when we needed the tangible help, you know, Mm -hmm. our friends showed up, um, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah, and then a week later, the pandemic hits. Then, you know, safer at home, you know, for people that had homes. People that had homes, yeah. The world changed for all of us. Mm -hmm. Where did you stay? We 
we had to couch surf for a while. So we stayed with friends and family until we could figure things out. And then we rented a house from a friend. Um, And so we've been renting. And he was going to sell the house this summer, but he didn't. So we're thankful we didn't have another round of displacement. Oh, yeah. Um, But we're we're able to hopefully move in in a couple, um, couple weeks. Well, so your husband's name is Andrew, right? Yes, it is. And <laughs> I, so in, it talks about this in your book, but you met through at Lipscomb and where, where did you meet? Like in a, in a group? We met in an English class. Well, we yeah. met at Otter Creek through a mutual friend and then had an English class together and then started doing some work with this group called Students for International Peace and Justice. It was okay. a service, another service club at National, um, at, at Lipscomb. So we met a few different ways and then kind of just became really good friends and started co-conspiring together. (laughs) It's like a beautiful little love story. I remember reading about it, him writing you letters when you were abroad and not to give away all the the details of the book, but I really like it. Yeah, it's, you know, the book um, is a memoir, but it's also a love story, Um, Mm -hmm. not only to my husband, but to the people that... Um, I love on the streets, many of whom we've lost, many of whom we're still journeying with. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I can't, you know, we're whole people. We can't deny those parts of our humanity, too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about a little bit about what he does and how y'all work together in that way? Yeah, so um, we both got our Master's of Theological Studies from Vanderbilt, and then he went on to get his Ph.D., Um, there. But before he did that, he was the editor for The Contributor, which for people that aren't familiar, it's a street newspaper here. And it Mm -hmm. is one of the largest street newspapers in North America and just an incredible resource. Um, But he was the editor for that. And then um, he stayed really involved in housing justice work, but he's also gone on to really do a lot around, um, you know, he has his PhD in religion and ethics, but and thinking, applying a theological and ethical lens to the criminalization of race and poverty. Mm-hmm. So those things go hand in hand. And they, it turns out, they're very closely connected to the work that we do at Open Table Nashville with housing justice, too. Mm-hmm. So it's been really cool to have that that we can share together. Um, mm-hmm. It makes our dinner conversations interesting. We're mm-hmm. talking about, did you see um, what this council member did? Or I heard from this one today, and did you hear about the new bill or whatever? Mm-hmm. So um, it's... Um, it's fun. Um, it's a lot of fun. We've already taken our son to a public hearing on the budget meeting and uh, wow. for this spring and to some other actions. So okay. <laughs> hopefully he'll grow up in the water of this as well. How how are you showing your son this kind of thing? Like, how are you raising him up? What What do you want him to know from you and Andrew, if you had one thing? I mean, he's one, and um, we're already trying to um, teach him compassion in small ways. Um, when we see people on the median, we wave, or, you know, I have a little doll for him at home, and when the doll, like, cries, you know, we try to pat and comfort, so we're mm-hmm. trying to teach the tiny bits of compassion. But we're also trying to get him out in the community um, in the safest ways that we can, right? A lot of outdoor things, so he can see people that are different from him and grow up knowing that, when things in our community aren't right and we go to the decision makers and they say no, we don't just quit because people's lives are at stake. We, we organize together. You know, we try to create the change that is so needed. Um, and so I'm hoping that he'll, you know, remember he'll have pictures of himself at things and then start to remember um, mm-hmm. actions himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows? We also just pray because that's all you can do yeah. with yeah. the little babies yeah. and kids. Who knows? Yeah. You do your best. Yeah. <laughs> you do your best. Yeah. And he still has, he still has yet to uh, spend a night in his house yet. Right. Right. So he hasn't. That's coming soon. I know. I can't wait That'll to have him That'll be a big celebration for y'all, for him. Uh, that'll be huge. Hey, so for Lindsay, you, um, I mean, you're you're in the trenches of um, really impactful yet I'm sure exhausting work. I know, but so what is it for you that uh, that keeps you grounded? Like, what are some of your disciplines that you practice and that are part of your rhythms and routines um, that make up who you are? Um, you know, so many of my rhythms and routines have shifted this past year. And so I'm kind of still um, recalibrating after being a mom, a new mom and not having the space that I used to have. But um, the things that are, the disciplines that are still really important to me um, are a few. Um, One is simplicity and and just trying to have integrity um, in a world where so many people don't have things. So trying to live as close to the ground as we can and have some simplicity there. Um, 
contemplation and silence and prayer and um, those rhythms have always been something that's helped me balance a very active life um, that's very much living out a public faith, right? Um, A faith in public. Um, There's a theologian, Cornel West, who says um, love or justice is what love looks like in public. Um, But in order to do that work um, for the long haul, there has to be some kind of rhythms that root and sustain you. And for so long, um, doing silent retreats at the Abbey of Gethsemane, which is just, um, you know, over the across the Tennessee border in Kentucky, was really grounding for me. Um, and journaling and, and writing, of course, has been a way that I've processed. But um, practicing some kind of Sabbath in my life has been a really important practice. That doesn't mean I'm practicing it right now. I'm really struggling and really <laughs> want to find a way to practice yeah. it. Um, but um, it's been a hard season. And so I'm excited about trying to find some of those rhythms and to incorporate Larkin, our son, into those rhythms as well and, and see um, what we can come up with as a family. So if anybody has suggestions, drop me an email, send me <laughs> something. Like, I would love to hear what you've learned. Well, I have no doubt you and Andrew will walk through that together and you'll learn from others and you'll you'll figure that out yourself uh, with, who, with, yeah, with how God shaped you to be who you are. So. <laughs> When you are exhausted and unsure where the next ounce of energy is going to come from, because I know you have like a million things going on all the time, do you have one story or one person that you think of that kind of gets you out of bed and makes you keep going? They're so, you know, I am, I just live in such awe of our friends on the streets. I, you know, so many people see our friends on the streets and they see everything they lack. When I look at people experiencing homelessness, I see all their strengths and capabilities and everything they've survived. I know a lot of the stories of trauma, you know, um, and there's one person in particular that I write about in the book, um, Papa Smurf, who Mm -hmm. is still a very dear friend. He's the self-appointed godfather for Larkin. (laughs) So (laughs) he recently sent us this big package in the mail, mostly little gifts for Larkin. Um, I won't Mm -hmm. give away his story from the book, but you know, he's a really special guy and, um, he, he, um, experienced a lot of abuse and neglect from his family system of origin. And that started him on a path that led to him being at Tent City where I met him. Um, a lot of folks don't realize that people, people's lives have roots, you know, into their past experiences of trauma and, um, neglect and all these things. So, but he is so inspiring because he lived more radical hospitality than anyone I've ever known, than any church I've ever known. He had a hospital wing in his tent. He nursed squirrels back to life. And like this dude with like two broken arms and a broken neck, he and his partner nursed them back to life. No health insurance, no hospital would have kept them. So they kept them in in his hospital wing. And I think about how much he gave, yet he had so little Mm -hmm. and how much so many of us have, yet how little we give. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just... It's just such an inspiration to me. Um, I see people doing, continuing to go and continuing to care for people that are around them mm-hmm. um, in circumstances that I can't imagine. And um, their love and courage um, and faith, right? There's so much faith in someone who says, I don't know where my next meal is, but God's going to provide yeah. I don't have that faith. Uh-uh. Like, like I'm like, I'm packing my lunches. I'm like, do I have enough to eat today or I can go to this place? People are like, literally, God will provide my next meal. And that kind of faith is something that is astounding to me. Mm-hmm. So that's special. Yeah. I and I'm a freak at planning and stuff like that. So I'm like, gotta go to the grocery store, gotta make my list, gotta, you know. I'm never yes. like, God will provide my next meal. I wish I was more like that. Oh, hang out with Papa Smurf for a while and you yeah, maybe <laughs> all of us should. He's, I mean, he's fun too. So. Let me know where he is. Okay. We'll take a <laughs> road trip. Out. Yeah. How do you continue to have the strength to do your work after most likely having so many doors shut in your face with the world and how it is now? I feel like it's not easy to get a lot of things that you try to do done. Totally. I... You know, I, I've had doors shut in my face um, from an early age, um, and part of that was in, um, in feeling a call to ministry and, and um, some kind of mission and service that I was told I couldn't do as a female in the church that I grew up in, that I loved dearly. 
And so um, for a little while, that shut me down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of closed those doors, and I accepted the closed doors, um, even though I felt like God was calling me to come through those doors. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget what one of my friends, um, one of our good friends who was on death row wrongfully for 20 years and was finally released. Wow. When he was still in prison, he told me, he said, um, he said, here's how I've survived. He said, they push you down. Um, that's on them. But if you stay down, that's on you. Mm. Um, and he had lived that um, wrongfully in prison for over 20 years. And if people can continue, you know, so many people that have faced so much more adversity than me um, have continued to push. There is like some kind of fire in your belly, you know, like I think the prophet Jeremiah described it as um, there was a like there's a fire shut up in his bones and he couldn't hold it in. Mm. Um, It's kind of like this, like hunger for righteousness and justice and, um, and freedom and liberation that, you know, I felt in a small way in my life, but so many people who have been so much more oppressed and had so many more doors shut in their face have to feel in a greater amount, um, a greater way. So Mm -hmm. um, just connecting those histories and and feeling that fire in your bones that just won't say no. And I think as the Spirit of God um, in us, um, that's definitely helped me keep going and to not, to try not to burn too many bridges along the way and always try to keep relationships open wherever I can mm-hmm. has been really important to me. Yeah. That's really cool. So we've talked about, you've referenced tent city a few times and we're, we're familiar with what that is just being right here in Nashville. But for those that may not have heard of tent city, like, and there's been, you know, there's been publicity, a lot of publicity in the media about it over the years, but for anybody that might've missed that, describe to us what it's like for those who call it home. So, Tent City is on this really interesting um, piece of land that is um, part state, part private, um, and it's under this interstate bridge, so there's not a lot of development that's happened on it. Um, you go down a hill toward the river, and you hang a right on a footpath by the train tracks, and then go back um, on another footpath, and you see this sprawling, like, mini city that, you know, has had in the past self-governance um, and, you know, folks that did security patrols. And, you know, it's it's been an organized place in years past. Um, and it'd be interesting. I, I think there's energy to organize it there again because the population's grown since the pandemic. But, you know, people are living in anywhere from a lean-to with like a holy tarp to a shed that they built with their own hands and they're running electricity from generators or a nearby billboard that they got permission to tap or whatever. (laughs) Um, There's, you know, people are really carving out a space for themselves in a city that said, you know, you don't, you don't deserve to live here. You can't make it. Um, There's a lot of people that don't fit into our missions and our shelters because they're pet owners or couples or work non-traditional hours or can't do with a crowded settings you know it's not always safe so it's a I mean it's a really thriving community it's not always um that kind of acts to um kind of church feel where everybody's sharing what they have in common you know there's (laughs) just there's despair there's disparities um there's desperation um but certainly um there's amazing people down there and that's only one camp in the city Mm -hmm. you know there are over 200 that we know of um, in the city. Many of them are smaller, but um, there's at least eight right now facing displacement, either have been displaced or are facing displacement in the city, which is the highest number we've ever had happening at once. Mm. So Tent City right now is, um, Metro Parks is having a public meeting tonight um, about redeveloping Tent City into a park. Um, And that's spurred partly by the new development trends. So a luxury condo developer just bought the property on the bluff that looks over Tent City. They're going to build luxury condos there. So the city's like, well, let's develop it um, and move the development up from downtown up the river. So we're um, we're really concerned about displacement. Obviously, we want people in housing, not tents. Um, so we're working for that. But um, in the meantime, people shouldn't be displaced with nowhere to go, mm-hmm. literally nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you talk about the 200 other camps, that are in and around Nashville. How do you, how do you guys find out about them? And then what does that look like practically for you to come alongside those people? You know, we always meet people where they are. So that's um, geographically, it's spiritually, it's emotionally. 
but um, we have a, we've we've developed some street cred over the years. So I bet you have. Sometimes yeah. we get calls and it's like, Miss Lindsay, I started this new camp. Come out and see it. And it's like yeah. it's in Madison. You know, they've had to move out of the city. They've been pushed out too. Um, and other times we're just checking the railroad tracks and there's a new footpath off of it. Um, or um, we're talking to the guy on the media and we're saying, where do you stay? You know, you're in Antioch, you're far out from the shelters. Where do you stay? And they're like, actually right behind the sicko or, you know, right behind this, um, you know, Kroger or whatever. And so the more you build trust, the more what we call the underside of Nashville opens up to you. And it's, um, it, once you see the city from below, you, you will never be the same. Um, it yeah. is it is a whole ecosystem that most of us never see. Which you literally have seen. Which we have seen. Underneath the city. And yeah, literally underneath yeah. the city and, and all the pipes, the water yeah. system, but, but also under the bridges and, and the forgotten abandoned places of empire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Lindsay, talk to us about how do you balance being in community with people in wealth and living in solidarity with the unhoused and the un- underprivileged. You know, we um, we really, really meet people where they are. That is something that's really important to us. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of people when they come to us for education on issues of homelessness, they ask, well, what causes poverty? We get asked the same thing about what causes wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what caused um my parents to be able to help me with my undergrad education so I don't have debt right now. You know, well, their parents had a certain amount of financial stability, partly because of long-term, like, federal government loans from way back that prioritized folks who were white um, and had a certain social standing. Um, And, you know, the doors that opened for them as people who are white. And, of course, there's an element of hard work, but there's so many people working hard that don't have the same doors. So, um, so... You know, we meet people where they are, and um, I think God meets us all where where we are, and the Spirit of God meets us all where we are. And then through community, that's where we see the transformation. The What I've seen um, over the last 14 years of doing this work is that, um, you know, when people who have socioeconomic standing come into community with people who don't, there is a, there is an element of open hands that happens. There is generosity that that can pour out and that can start to level the playing field a little bit. Um, and and hopefully, um, you know, we'll have some systemic measures that will continue to help um, make sure people aren't being left out of ways to grow um, and and thrive like everyone should have. But um, but yeah, there's this element of generosity and communion even when you break bread together. Um, and certainly, um, I've it, we call it this collaboration, right? Um, so, like, literally through the sharing of resources, when wealthy people share their resources, there is an amount of um, economic liberation that can happen for folks in poverty. But there's also this amount of spiritual liberation that happens when wealthy people share what they have. Um, and I've experienced this too when we open our hands. Um, and that is something that I think we find in James, the book of James in the gospel. That is a fiery book. If anybody hasn't read James in a while, like, mm. and is thinking about wealth, like, holy cow, <laughs> like, strap on your seatbelt. Um, but, I mean, I remember people asking, like, can you, like, there's a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. How much wealth is ethical, you know, in an age of mass homelessness, in an age of mass incarceration, in an age where, um, you know, mass evictions are, are on the rise um, and happening. Um, we, those of us who have are called to share. Um, and the, um, you know, what I've found is that solidarity always happens through relationships. And you start um, moving towards solidarity um, by closer proximity to the poor and by meaningful long-term relationships with folks. Um, and that can happen through volunteering. It can happen through um, getting to know your contributor vendor or the person on the median or um, working with your local nonprofits like us hand in hand. Um, but, you know, we're, personal transformation goes hand in hand with systemic transformation. And um, all of us are, um, all of us are never finished or never fully transformed and liberated or whatever. We're in the process of becoming more free. We're in the process of bringing the kingdom of God um, to the in the here and now, um, and that's an unfolding that is really beautiful. But we meet people where they are. So your book, "Praying with Our Feet," 
How did you come up with the name of that? Because I remember getting it and I was like praying with our feet. How was that? <laughs> How do you do that? Well, I didn't um, come up with it. Um, okay. So there's um, a really amazing Jewish mystic and scholar of the Hebrew prophets named um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And for folks that aren't familiar with him, um, we all should be more familiar with him, but he um, he had to flee um, you know, Nazi-occupied Europe during the Holocaust, um, and he came over to the States. Um, and he started seeing parallels to what folks were experiencing in segregation um, with what he experienced in the Holocaust. So he got really involved in the civil rights movement. And he became close with Martin Luther King Jr. And as they were marching arm in arm um, in Alabama during the civil rights movement, um, he said, I felt as if our legs were praying. Um, you know, legs are not lips and um, our feet didn't utter any words, but we, that was worship. That march was worship. Mm-hmm. Um, we were praying with our legs, praying with our feet. And, um, you know, a lot of us have been taught that our spirituality, that our faith is about personal morality and personal salvation. And, you know, maybe an element of that's true. But if we can't grasp that um, our faith is called, we're, we're called to live our faith faith out loud to in the public sphere and to let it transform our pocket of society, whether that's our family, our small groups, our neighborhood, our world, um, our city, we're called to live, to embody that spirituality. Um, and praying with our feet is so beautiful to me, um, because um, I've experienced worship and working for social justice in Nashville Mm -hmm. when my feet were pounding the pavement, when, I was dying and rising on the pavement of Nashville with folks who were claiming that black lives matter too. Um, like that was worship. We were chanting and it was like, like, I, I mean, I thought about the monastic chants where you sing the Psalms back and forth. Mm-hmm. Like that was a kind of worship to me. And I found God there. Um, mm-hmm. I find God in the places um, that are often not domesticated and often not, um, I don't know, like, shut in, like, um, the room that we're in right now, like I find God on the streets more than I find God in many of our churches. And, um, I wanted, I, I thought that praying with our feet kind of named that sentiment really well, that, um, helped us think about getting outside of ourselves and, and outside of our physical faith communities to really try to, um, be part of the bigger story of the way God's moving in the world and wants to move in the world. Yeah. You find worship, I feel like in the mundane, in the things that you're not looking for. You really do, yeah. yeah, if you have eyes to see it. And that's the mystics have always known that. Um, mm-hmm. Brother Lawrence talked about um, finding God through washing dishes because of, through mindfulness and mm-hmm. um, through applying his spirituality through that. So so how was that kind of putting everything, well, not everything, but how did you pick and choose what to put in your book? How Was, was that difficult for you to do? Oh, or? gosh. Yeah. 14 <laughs> years worth of stories. Um, mm-hmm. It was so, and my publishers, I, I got a, broader word count than they gave me initially something for oh, yeah. that. But you have to stick with your word count um, when you're writing a book. So, you know, part of it, um, I've journaled for the last 14 years um, plus. You had it. And so I had the stories there. A lot of it was discerning and tying, you know, when you're thinking about not just doing your own personal, like, um, I don't know, scrapbook, but really thinking about weaving together a story that will connect with folks and that has you know, the thing you, you start finding themes throughout the years that kind of, um, threads, you know, that you can follow and, and give you, give your life meaning and give your story meaning. Um, I read a lot of books about writing that helped me think about what threads were important to pull out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I pulled out those threads and then I still had twice the book I needed to have. So I <laughs> cut it down even more oh, and I had a writing group that helped, but, um, you know, if we think back, all of our lives have these threads of grace and um, and struggle in them, um, and it's really interesting to um, to start to pull those out. There's a lot of meaning that can come, but I was also hoping to find stories that we could connect with others. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, it did. Yeah, you did <laughs> yeah. a great job. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. You, um, you know, I, it, when you think back over 14 years, you probably didn't envision then that. Um, at the end of your name one day would be author. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> and, uh, and, but that, but that, you know, that's a, a writing and journaling that is obviously a passion and something that you were doing the whole time that God was using that for a reason. But uh, talk about some of the challenge and obstacles that you faced in writing the book and getting it published and launching it and promoting it amidst the pandemic and becoming a new mom and, 
Um, yeah, all of those things. Like it, um, give us some insight into what that was for you as a first time author. I've always been, I've always written, it's been the way I've made sense of life. Even like when I was in elementary school, dear diary, you know, like mm-hmm. it's how I processed. Um, but I started writing a blog and then started writing some articles and, and it was resonating with more people and people started approaching me about a bigger project. And I really was really wanting to do that. But, um, I was working full time and, you know, our work at Open Table Nashville is we are in the trenches. We are crisis response. Um, it, it's not forgiving. It is hard work demanding. And so it really took, um, you know, I, I do this work myself, but I do it as part of a team. And um, I was able to take um, a day off, put all my work into four days instead of five, which is really like six or seven. But I took a day off to write every week um, and really focused on writing on the weekends. And um, joined a writing group. There's a porch writing collective here that's amazing. Um, they are really helpful. And then um, with other authors that I met along the way, friends um, and folks that I met through writing groups, they started helping me shape a book proposal. Um, and I started connecting to um, agents and found an agent. And then she started workshopping the proposal and, and sending it out to groups. Um, it's a The publishing world is a beast, right? Um, it is not for the faint of heart. It is not for you. If you, I was, you know, my first book proposal, I sent to an editor way before it was ready. And they were like, uh, to an agent, he was like, Nope, it's not ready. It's not for people scared of rejection. Right. Um, it's hard work. Um, but, um, I had to make the space first and not feel guilty about the space and know, right. Know that the writing was part of the work too, to get the work to bigger audience. Um, but I read, I'm telling you, like writing doesn't, most authors, writing is what they do, but good writing doesn't come naturally. It's something that you work really hard at. And I read book after book. I listened to so many audiobooks. How do they do this? How do they tell this part of their story? Um, and then I just finished the first draft of the book. Um, I, it was a huge accomplishment. And the tornado hit our home like two days mm. later. So I'd just been on a retreat. Um, and then the tornado hit because you still have to do so much work to get a book ready. So many edits. Um, it was very challenging. I was also in writing the book. Um, I was also sick for the first three months of my pregnancy. So like literally t- people call it morning sickness. It is not morning sickness. It is li- like life sickness or like, <laughs> like all day, every day and night sickness. <laughs> like you cannot eat anything but saltine sickness. Um, me and Sprite got really close yeah. um, during that time. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I was writing while I was sick, um, and I'm thankful that I could have some workspace from that. But it was you do it because you love it. It is a labor of love, and you work hard to do it. It is not easy. Um, I'm really thankful for the doors that opened, and I feel very honored to have written the stories and have permission to share so many of the stories, um, all the stories I have permission to share. Um, but to have such community around it is, um, and, and excitement is really, really a blessing and an honor. You have a quote from the book that I really liked. Uh, it's the reality for some of our friends who make it off the streets is that housing alone isn't the magic bullet. Without community and support and sometimes even with it, they merely leave one kind of poverty for another. Mm. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, I am a housing rights advocate. I'm an affordable housing advocate. So I will advocate for everyone to have safe and decent housing until I die. Um, and I know that it's not just a roof of, over someone's head that's healing. Mm-hmm. Like housing is literally healthcare. People get better physically and emotionally when they have a safe place. Um, but there's also a lot of emotional trauma people have experienced. And without some kind of community support or systems of support, a lot of people move from the community of a shelter, community of a campsite into an isolated box um, that's in a crowded project or something. Mm-hmm. And that can be a really lonely experience. Um, and and they're still in poverty, right? Now they just have bills to pay. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very it's a very difficult transition that some of my friends have likened to a veteran coming home from war, you know, that a person moving from the trauma and survival of the streets all of a sudden, they're in this box that's safe, but they have to f- still process and figure yeah. out like how to manage their demons and like their emotional healing and everything. So, 
Um, you know, we've realized that um, the falling away of community is one of the things that contributes to people becoming homeless. Yeah. So one of the things that must come with um, moving people into housing is the restoration of community mm-hmm. um, and building back those relationship networks, mm-hmm. um, whether that's with family or friends or new community. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something really important to remember. These things are complex issues. Um, yeah. And it's going to take um, a lot of us, um, you know, being in relationship with folks that are in the process of healing, just like we all are, um, in order to really, um, really change things. Mm-hmm. So you've seen that tangibly kind of work out for people who move from tents to apartments oh, yeah. or they've found community that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have so many people that have made it and it's so exciting to hear. I mean, hundreds and hundreds over the years that are in housing now yeah. or that passed away in housing had a safe place to transition from this life to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such a gift and a blessing. And it's, I stay in touch with a lot of people we've moved in and it's really, Aww. really cool. So Lindsay, you've mentioned this a couple of times now, how in the book, um, you know, you're honoring the people who you've who you've loved life beside and who you've uh, served and who have been your, who are your friends. And, um, and I, I just love the picture of that, what you've painted in the book that will always be there. And, you know, for those people who you've met on the streets, for those people you've met in tent city, um, you know, you've done a, you've done a great job of honoring their life in a dignified way. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but tell our listeners, the book's been out about six months now and uh, tell our listeners where they can uh, pick up a copy, where they can buy the book, um, where they can find out more about you. Totally. Um, The book is full of lots of twists and turns. There are some, (laughs) lots of conflict, and um, it's a, I think it's a really fun read. Um, But, you know, we always encourage folks to buy locally when they can. So in Nashville, we have Parnassus, our lovely local independent bookseller, um, and there, you know, you can really buy this book anywhere books are sold. Um, there's certainly it, every option online you can find. Um, but if you can buy it locally, we always love to support the local bookstores. So, yeah. So the name of the, our podcast is It Takes a Village. And I know we've talked about your community a lot. Um, the, the bigger community that you have, that's your village. But who is your village personally? Um, who have been some mentors in your life that has shaped you and molded you into who you are? You know, our Andrew and my village is certainly um, some friends um, that have really, um, really journeyed with us through all the ups and downs and highs and lows of this work over the last 14 years. And of course, our family, um, they have not abandoned us despite our unconventional career choices. <laughs> and, and sometimes, um, you know, sometimes seeing us arrested on national news. Um, okay, yeah. So they have stuck with us. Um, there's also our friends on the streets who, um, absolutely become part of our community along the way. Not everybody, you know, we don't form close friendships with everybody. Sometimes we're part of people's, you know, pages or chapters. Other times we're part of people's books and, uh, it just, you journey long-term. Um, but a few, um, a few dear mentors along the way, um, you know, I can't forget Charlie Strobel, who um, here locally founded Room in the Inn, um, a local homeless outreach nonprofit or homeless service provider. Um, he has is truly the gentlest, kindest, most prophetic person I've ever met um, in this life. And I'm so thankful for the way that he kind of saw us putting ourselves out on a limb and said, um, you're not alone. Like, let's do this together. I've been doing this for a few years now, mm-hmm. <laughs> like 30. And okay. um, let's, you know, here's, we're going to do this together. Um, there are also other people that um, have seen us through friends from Lipscomb, um, friends from Otter Creek. There's a minister named Scott Owings who has been locally um, kind of one of our spiritual mentors. Um, and I think about the community of saints that surrounds us as well. Um, you know, People, religious um, saints from the past, Dorothy Day, St. Francis. Um, so I, I'm, we don't have time for all the people I want to name, but many of them are in the book. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it does take a village. It, it is all about community, and it's through community that we find God and, mm-hmm. and learn to love our neighbor and ourselves. Um, and I, I just, you know, for people that are feeling lonely, um, 
reach out to somebody because that community um, is there. Um, it's We just have to be proactive in finding it. And then once we find our people, um, put down roots, you know. Let's tell people how they can get involved with Open Table. Just so many opportunities to volunteer or to, to learn more about. Where, where can they find out more information online? But then also, what, what can they do about issues of homelessness in their community? Because I, I imagine for, for a lot of people, it seems overwhelming. Like you can't solve it all. Yeah. But um, you can help somebody. Totally. And as I sit here listening to your stories, um, knowing how much progress has been made in the last 10 years, um, you know, uh, you and Open Table haven't been able to pull everybody out, but you have pulled a lot out mm-hmm. that uh, would not have been otherwise. But so to talk to us about how they can get involved, where they can find out more information and just uh, in their own community, how people can help out. So you can find Open Table Nashville online. Um, We have a website, opentablenashville.org. We're also on socials, and that's a really good way to stay in touch with me or um, with Open Table Nashville. We post um, calls to action, statistics, all kinds of stuff. Um, So definitely encourage people to look there. Um, And then when it comes to getting involved in issues of homelessness, I always encourage people to think on a micro level and also a macro level. So on a micro level, um, how can we show kindness to people that we're coming across? And that may just be in our car, stopped at a median, and there's somebody asking for change. Um, Or if we're in rural areas, um, thinking creatively about who's struggling with housing insecurity in our community. But for the folks um, that just pull up their car to the median and see someone, one of the things we can do, a small act of kindness, is just carrying water with us when it's hot or hand warmers with us when it's cold or carrying extra socks in your car. Socks are like gold on the streets. Any season, dry, warm socks are amazing. So what can we carry so that when we see people, we can smile and wave and affirm their human dignity and ask their name and and offer whatever we have, you know, in that small moment. Um, It's so important to show kindness. Kindness is important. Kindness on a macro level is justice, which is why we encourage people to think on the macro level too. That could be anything from following groups like us doing housing justice work. So when we ask to write your council members, you you move, you maybe get to know your council members, um, your elected officials, um, small things like that, and amplifying um, the work that we're doing and other nonprofits are doing in your own network is really important to raise more awareness. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Just know that you're making a difference. Know that um, what you're doing in the city for uh, people who, for a lot of people, they'll never see their face or hear their name um, in some regard. Like you you and Open Table and all those who surround you are making a significant difference mm-hmm. in the lives of those who live on the margins. And uh, we greatly appreciate it. And we're thankful that you joined us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, we share so much. Um, we share interest in poverty alleviation, right? And mm-hmm. and in not just um, not just doing handouts, but really changing the system where so many people are in poverty and, and hunger and so many other disparities across the country and globe. So right. um, let's keep working together. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. So that was our conversation with Lindsay. That was that was great. Mark, what was your takeaway from our chat with Lindsay? Wow, Lindsay, she wears um, so many different hats. And um, having known her uh, back when she was in college and just seeing where she is now, it is, it is great to just see how um, God has been with her along the journey. It's helped shape her and mold her and how into who she is today. And just to, uh, just to hear her... Um, how she is in the trenches mm-hmm. uh, with those in our community who most people uh, will never see or never talk to. Mm-hmm. And um, she advocates for them. She stands up for them. She has a voice for them. Um, and, you know, and what she's done with her book is something that honors them. Yeah. And it's something that, um, well, like she said, it's a memoir mm-hmm. of the last 14 years of her life mm-hmm. and, and how she has... Um, how she has helped them and served them. But, you know, I, I think for Lindsay, it is um, what they've also done for her yeah. you know, and how they have uh, shaped her faith. So, Taryn, how about at you? What, um, when you look back on that um, hour we just spent with Lindsay, mm-hmm. what are some things that come to mind that um, you're going to mm-hmm. take away? Well, I, I thought it was really cool since you've known her for a long time. Um, I just met her today 
And from just listening to her and hearing from her speak about what she's passionate about, I I was moved with what she's doing and giving a voice to the the voiceless and helping people out of situations that are impossible to get out of. Um, and it's really cool to think about it being right here in our backyard, right here in Nashville. Um, and I really like how we at Healing Hands, even though we work internationally, we can hold hands with uh, nonprofits, nonprofits like hers, and we can really learn from each other and see what's going on uh, with them. And you think about it and you're like, well, what we both do is very similar. You know, it's, it's from a, fi- a 50 foot view looking down, but what we do is we're eradicating homelessness, poverty, hunger, and um, it's important to see that the work that we're doing is important. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so so many, um, she had so many great things to say. As we close out here, uh, we'd encourage you to go buy Lindsay's book, Praying With Our Feet, uh, buy it from your local bookstore if you can, or uh, you can get it anywhere online and you can check it out. Um, uh, more about her on lindsaycrinks.com and opentablenashville.org. So uh, so that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of It Takes a Village. Uh, we're just grateful, as we say every time, that you're part of the community that we have here on the podcast. And one way you can help us out as we are just launching this is you can go whatever platform you listen to it on. You can subscribe. Uh, rate, leave us a review, and just keep listening. Um, If you want to learn more about what we do at Healing Hands International, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, you can join our mailing list and uh, follow us along the journey. So um, that's it. We appreciate you being with us. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it. See ya. See ya. Na 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 na